Everyone else, I'm so glad to see you here at the Neighborhood Church. So glad you're joining us online. I hope you'll stick with us. Uh, if you're here in person and you didn't get a communion pack, I'd invite you to grab one. Bye, Audrey. I'd invite you to grab one right here. Um, and uh, I have, you have a Bible, would you turn or swipe to John chapter 13? That's where we're headed here in just a moment. We're here in the season of Lent. We're rounding home, and Lent is the season of giving, praying, and fasting. And the way I've been approaching Lent this season is some spring cleaning to refocus and dust off the cobwebs of my life, the things that have been crowding and cluttering my soul and my mind, because Lent is a season that prepares us to celebrate the Resurrection Sunday, Easter. Lent is the darkness before the dawn, and Lent this year is when we're focusing on this idea of decreasing the stuff, status, and self so that we might increase our communion with God. This evening, we're going to see a premier example of how Jesus models for us a decrease of status. In a world that's obsessed with notoriety and attention and fame, we go back and see this powerful example and portrait of what it looks like to lower yourself so that others might be lifted. So join me in John chapter 13. This is probably on the greatest hits album of Jesus' life and ministry. Not just because of the words he says within this chapter, but the object lesson he gives to his disciples in this intimate space that has been handed down for us tonight. So join me there in John chapter 13. We're going to read the first half of this chapter. It was just before the Passover festival. Jesus knew that the hour had come for him to leave this world and go to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. That's one verse. There's a lot there. Verse 2. The evening meal was in progress, and the devil had already prompted Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, to betray Jesus. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power, and that he had come from God and was returning to God Pause there. There's something about how Jesus is tuned in and paying attention to the will of the Father. And then on the other side, right across from the table, there's his disciple, his close friend, in that same space listening to a quite different whisper and voice. It's interesting how in verse 1 we see he loved them to the end. But evil has a way of slipping into the cracks, even in good and beautiful and intimate spaces. But Jesus proceeds to continue to do what he senses he must do. So in verse 4, he got up from the mill, took off his outer clothing and wrapped a towel around his waist. And after that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with the towel That was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? And Jesus replied, You do not 
realize now what I am doing, but later you will understand. No, said Peter, you shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered, unless I wash you, you have no part with me. Then Lord, Simon Peter replied, not just my feet, but my hands and my head as well. Jesus answered, those who have had a bath need only to wash their feet. Basically what he's saying, for supper time, you don't say, hey kids, go take a shower, unless they're that messy. The idea is that if you have showered for the day, you got to go wash your hands, right? Or in those dusty streets, and when tables were reclined at, laid on your side at, they're already clean in some sense, we'll explore later. But there's just this ordinary, daily, let's get ready for the meal kind of cleaning that's in view here. Let's keep going in our story. Those who have had a bath need only to wash their feet. Their whole body is clean, and you are clean, though not every one of you. For he knew who was going to betray him, and that was why he said not everyone was clean. When he had finished washing their feet, he put on his clothes and returned to his place. Do you understand what I've done for you? He asked them. You call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that's what I am. But now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. What a story. What a countercultural example. Before we dive back into it, I'm going to invite you to pray these words from the Book of Common Prayer in the Episcopal and Anglican tradition. They have these prayers for each Sunday, and they're really powerful in these holy seasons, such as Lent. Would you pray these words out loud with me together? Almighty God, you alone can bring into order the unruly wills and affections of sinners. Grant your people grace to love what you command and desire what you promise, that among the swift and varied changes of the world, our hearts may surely there be fixed where true joys are to be found. Through Jesus Christ our Lord, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. I'm going to ask for some more audience participation, because I started to kind of write these statements and think about these statements, and I thought, well, maybe I'm making some assumptions. So I want, by a show of hands, whether or not you agree or disagree with a couple statements. First, show of hands if you agree. Our culture is obsessed with fame. Okay? Second statement. Our culture is obsessed with status. Okay? Final statement. The more followers on social media, typically the more famous a person becomes. It may be a chicken and egg thing, but how many of you on Instagram 
no people that are famous because they amassed a large group of followers. Yes? Okay. It seems like I'm not just making assumptions while I was at Tom Thumb earlier today and saw in bright big letters, William and Kate, second honeymoon. That's newsworthy, I suppose, that the royal couple has gone on a second honeymoon. Amazing. That's great for them. And I just started thinking, are we or aren't we obsessed with fame? This morning I spoke at a men's breakfast. It was a lovely time, great people. And I began to get introduced by wonderful, well-meaning servants of the Lord and community. And I was getting everyone's like greatest achievement and the, the thing on their business card. And then they came up and gave me this lofty introduction. And I thought, boy, if you even knew me, and if you even knew that I was only getting paid in biscuits and gravy, I have no status. It's okay. And I just thought, man, are we just loving to just pump each other up and to elevate ourselves and to feel good about ourselves? To some degree, it's okay to be positive and to work for these goals and these things, But I wonder if, by and large, we are obsessed with fame, status, for more attention, more notoriety, and more stuff. And then I see in Christian circles that just in the last two weeks, nine pastors from 16 stateside Hillsong campuses have resigned forcibly or willfully. And I just started to wonder, when we become so high, and when people put us on pedestals or we climb up there ourselves, is the human heart in Christian circles or in cultural circles able to bear the weight of so much attention, adoration, or abhorrence? Some of you in your circles feel the pressure and weight of family members, co-workers, and you just got to believe that if we begin to give more and more attention and adulation and adoration, that we might just be crippled under this kind of weight. Yet, the originator of the Christian movement As we read in one of the original hymns of the Christian movement earlier in Philippians chapter 2, seemed to know our human and cultural condition and modeled for us from the very beginning what it looks like to decrease status. He modeled for us how to deflect attention. Now that's not to say that he didn't speak to masses of people But it also showed how he routinely withdrew to get grounded and reconnect with his true audience and his true purpose. He showed us also how to defy expectations. Do you realize that at the very start of his ministry, they were ready to crown him king? But he defied their expectations and then they tried to kill him for it. 
Because there is something that Jesus is trying to teach us on every page of the Gospels. There's something that Jesus is trying to teach us in one of the last nights he has with his closest disciples that he wants them not just to hear it, he wants them to feel it. He wants them to experience it. He wants to see so they know that they know that they know, not just theologically the incarnation, that he came from God and he's about to go back to God. He wants them to see what a rabbi, teacher, Lord, and Savior looks like when God turns the whole thing upside down on our culture that demands notoriety, attention, and status. To tell you the truth, Jesus fasted fame. I love the way Dr. Alicia Britt Cole says it in a book we looked at as a church together a couple years back during Lent. At the beginning of her book, she says, Jesus fasted omnipresence and clothed himself with flesh. He fasted being worshipped by angels and accepted the disregard of man. He fasted the voice that birthed planets and submitted to the silence of 30 hidden years. We are duly thankful, challenged, and inspired by Jesus' 40-day fast from food in the Judean wilderness. Perhaps we should likewise be grateful, awed, and humbled by his 30-year fast from praise, power, and potential in Nazareth. Can we just stop real quick? Some of you have turned 30 or are turning 30 very recently. And you probably, like me, thought of all the things we should be doing or ought to be doing or could be doing. And then we think back on Jesus and the small handful of verses that have survived and passed down the generations as God's Messiah, God's King, the long-awaited, promised ruler of Israel and the rightful ruler of the world, by the time he was 30, walked past a lot of people and a lot of potential to do a lot of things, but instead he entrusted himself to a father who told him to wait, wait, wait until the time had come. So if you think that you are nothing and that you'll amount to nothing, know that our Savior fasted notoriety, status, and self and entrusted himself to the care of a father who had bigger plans, even if it took ordinary shape, like washing feet. That's why in this Lenten series, Jesus shows us how we can decrease our stuff, self, and status, so that we can increase our communion with God. It's a kind of sold-out vision for a vocation that matters to God and says, I'm okay if the only person I matter is to God. But our culture is whispering and leading us in all different directions. Yet Jesus, in that Christian hymn we read earlier in Philippians 2, did not consider equality with God something to be exploited so he could gain more likes on Facebook. So this evening... I want to spend just a couple more minutes looking at Jesus' portrait that he gives us in John 13. Because he shows us something deeper than what it appears on the surface. And then you hear in his words Jesus' pattern, what he asks of us. And the question that you need to wrestle with is when Jesus said, you've seen what I've done to you. 
I've washed your feet, now go and wash other feet. You need to wrestle with the fact, does he mean what he says? Or is there something deeper there too? Because how many of you have washed somebody else's feet this week that's not an infant in a diaper? Right? Okay. So what is going on here? First, let's look at Jesus' portrait. And that first verse in John 13, 1 that I told you is so rich I see at least three bold brushstrokes just right there that's filling in the background of the portrait that John is going to give us in John 13. The first one is Passover. Would you look at your Bible in verse 1? The first thing we're told, and this is so important when you're reading the Gospels, when matters. When matters. John says, by the way, it was just before the Passover festival. Traditionally, we think and we, we try to date it on the Thursday before he's killed on a Friday. We position the second half of John's gospel. By the way, did you realize that half of John's gospel is about the last like three days of his life? So you want to talk about fasting 30 years. I have no idea what Jesus was up to when he was 19 years old. But we get half of a gospel on the last 72 or so hours of his life. When matters. It was just before Passover. The first big, bold brushstroke. When God delivered his people from slavery was Passover. If you want to understand the Old Testament and the story of Israel, you have to understand Passover. Jesus knows what he's up to, which is why the second big brushstroke there in 13 verses 1 is he knows the time has come. Did you see that? He knows the time has come for him to leave this world and go to the Father. I have revolutionized my understanding of the person of Jesus, fasting, status, and notoriety for 30 years when I understand that he's 100% God and yet 100% human. And what happens when he empties his omnipotence, he empties his omniscience, he empties his omnipresence to take on human flesh, and as we'll see, take on the form of a slave, I believe that there's some sense in which Jesus, just like all of us, come to a natural human understanding of his vocation and it takes him three years or more to finally wrestle with and grapple with what he knew intuitively he must do, he's starting to understand at this late hour all the way down to the garden, oh, I really do have to do this. What's the this? It's the ultimate sacrifice on the cross. Jesus coming to this greater and greater understanding of who he is, of what he's to do, and where he's going on the other side. There's this little verse in Hebrews that I love when it talks about the cross. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross. There's this other verse in Hebrews that talks about how he went into the Holy of Holies and he planted an anchor there. Jesus went into this unknown. He entrusted himself to the care of the Father. He said, have you forsaken me? I'm going here. Are you going to catch me when I fall? Are you going to be there? He went into the dark abyss of death. He absorbed the world's sin and evil and he went and pioneered and he staked this claim and he shows us the way 
that we can either die or we can die in Christ. And there is a fundamental and powerful difference there. And so we can follow Jesus, the pioneer who looked death in the face, who felt its anguish, who felt its fear, who felt its pain, but entrusted his father through the cross for the joy on the other side. This is what Jesus is coming to understand even now at this late hour. And why did he do it? For us, that's who he did it for. Why did he do it? Having loved his own who were in the world, he, what? Loved them to the end. The third huge brushstroke in this portrait that John is painting here is that he was motivated to move forward through pain because of love. Who's the them? In John 13, is it also Judas? Did Jesus love Judas even through to the end? Does Jesus sit at the table and then wash the feet of the one he knows has been corrupted and co-opted by the voice of the accuser? who's going to set this thing into motion. This is why the portrait that's beginning to get painted is so much deeper than Jesus doing a menial task, although that's huge. There's something about Passover that Jesus intuits, there's something about me rescuing Israel and the whole world from slavery again. There's something about this brushstroke of it's time. I'm understanding my vocation as the world's true king, but he's going to get enthroned on a cross with a sarcastic inaugural plaque. There's something about this third brushstroke that we need to understand that he loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. There's something in which he has a love for these people who will betray him, disobey him, and disrupt what is happening. I kind of was struck by this tweet by one of my favorites. Do you see it there on the screen? If Jesus saved a seat for Judas at the table and washed his feet, surely by the grace of God, we can come to the table with fellow Christians we disagree with. That's from Rich Viotis. I keep saying Viotis. He said Vilotis, but I think, I don't know. Rich Viotis, Rich Vilotis. Do you notice who liked that tweet? Lecrae. So we got to catch this response. By the way, that's Lizzo, and let me give you an impression of the gif, since it's just a static image. It's this. Also, shout out to Jeremiah and Lynette, who are in Arlington, because Lecrae's in town, and um, they're there instead of church. We love you anyway. Not a bad idea. Not a bad idea. It comes with the territory when you meet Saturdays at 5, and the whole 116 crew is in. I just got to wonder if this kind of agape love, the kind of I'll take it all, even the licks, 
even the punches on the nose. This is the kind of love that he is showing. And so this leads us to the big idea of this idea of the portrait that Jesus is painting. If God is love, 1 John 4, and God has showed his love by giving his son as an atoning sacrifice, John 4, and if his son is the image of the invisible God, Colossians 1, then Christ crucified is God's self-portrait. If Paul was so crazy and bold enough to say to one of his churches, I, desired, I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And if Jesus is showing the love of God, and if the love that God shows is self-giving, John 3, 16, the list goes on, then something about the cross, something about that moment in history is God's self-portrait, throwing his arms of love open to the world, saying, you can betray me, you can disown me, like Peter will, you can desert me, but there is something about the cross that says my arms are still open wide and you're still invited to the table. This is fundamental. And I'm telling you that this would never have happened if Jesus did not decrease his status. And because time was so clearly of the essence, and he knew that even in the context Luke tells us at dinner, they're still griping about who's going to be the greatest. They're still wondering who's going to have the biggest church. They're still wondering who's going to have the most followers. They're still wondering if they're going to make preachers and sneakers and wear Gucci shirts. By the way, this is from a thrift store and my vans are $50. I haven't figured it all out, but there's something still within me that wants to be the greatest. There's something within us that wants to elevate ourselves. But the cross, the crucified self-portrait, the God who is crucified, shows the world what it looks like to elevate others. And it happens by coming underneath them. Because in that conversation, still around the dinner in Luke 22, he says, look, the rest of the world is obsessed with status and notoriety. And all these other rabbis love to have you sit at their feet and learn. And by the way, that's what I'm doing. But whoever's the greatest among you will be a servant. And it's not going to be like you lording it over and voting whoever in and voting whoever out. It's going to come in this self-sacrificial from the ground up. Because what Christ models is this downward mobility. He did not consider equality with God something to be exploited. So he says no to the Satan three times in his temptation so that he is steeled himself for this, the greatest temptation, not to elevate himself, but to be enthroned on a cross so that he might say, Father, forgive them and bring us back home in forgiveness. Peter, earlier, when Jesus said, hey, I'm going to die, Peter says, no, don't die. Don't do that. That's stupid. And he says, get behind me. What? Satan. There is something culturally at work in the evil forces around that are continually calling us to give more credence and thought to me and my way. And then the Holy Spirit comes and says, no, 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 no. There's more life when you give yourself away to God and others. There's more life there 
even if it costs you something, especially if it costs you something. Those of you who are married, those of you who are parents, those of you who are children that have a difficult or strained relationship with your parents, those of you who had a friend who've betrayed you, those of you who understand what it's like to take grief from people that you love, does love cost something? Yes. But we see Jesus still going through the pain of sacrifice. Peter earlier said, don't die. Then Peter says, hey, don't wash my feet. Don't you love that? Dude, what are you doing? Why is he so freaked out? You've heard this passage, many of you, before, but I'll just remind you that you can probably deduce that that job was for the slave or the servant in the house. There is some Jewish historical writings from that period that said even though women were downgraded and thought less of, the husband would never make the wife wash his own feet. There is some instance where a child would wash the parent's feet as a sign of devotion and love, but typically they didn't want their kids rubbing in between their windows of their toes. Then there's other instances in which some Jewish households would say, we don't even want the slaves to mess with that. That's kind of a Gentile job, which is like another dig at the Gentiles. They're like, they're so yucky that they're going to get up under there with all them bunions and corns. Isn't there something intimate and raw and gritty about washing a person's feet? Now imagine that it's not just stinky when you take my $50 vans off. Imagine that all you had was sandals on unpaved roads. And then when you get to dinner, it's not a table with four chairs. It's a U-shaped table. And there's no chairs, there's pillows. And then what happens is the guests of honor start to fill in toward the head And then they lean on their left elbow, and then that leaves their right hand free to reach into the middle of the U-shaped table to reach for bread, to dip it in oil, or to dip it in wine, and they can eat with their right hand while their left elbow is reclined. So if you start to file in person after person, and this person is laying down, what happens to Joe behind me? Where's he eating, and where's his head? About how much? By his sneakers. Except homeboy doesn't have sneakers. He has them straw Jesus sandals that I got at Urban Outfitters when I was 18 years old. They were the most uncomfortable pair of sandals I've ever had. These woven things, they take them things off. They got to wash their feet because they're carrying in the dust. And so they wash these feet. And Peter says, dude, no way. I wouldn't ask my wife to do that. wouldn't ask my kids to do that. I would barely ask a servant to do that. And now here you are at the head of the table. You get up. He disrobes. And in another picture, portrait, of how the next day he'll be disrobed on the cross to give his life for Peter. Now he's going to give his time and attention to Peter Don't die, don't wash. And Jesus says, dude, enough. This is what love looks like. It costs. Even if it means he's lowering his status. I love this quote from a priest named Gerald O'Collins. He says this, while we look for him among priests, he is among sinners. While we look for him among the free, he is a prisoner. 
While we look for him in glory, he is bleeding on the cross. What Peter, even down to this last hour, still cannot understand. He's so entrenched in status and expectations that Jesus has been saying all along, don't you see me out with the poor and the sinners? Don't you see me with the unclean? Don't you see me linked up with John the Baptist who's about to get beheaded in prison? Don't you see me tomorrow bleeding on the cross? This is where Jesus is always finding himself in the geography of God's kingdom. And so, of course, he goes and does this common act, but it's loaded with uncommon meaning. That's why I love this phrase from Mother Teresa that you've probably heard or had on your desktop background a time or two. Do ordinary things with extraordinary love. I tried to find where she said that, but apparently she said it so much kind of anecdotally that they really can't place it. In fact, some people think maybe she didn't even say it. It just became attributed to her. But I like to think that she said it because that's what she did. There's a 1995 interview where they were asking about the kinds of work she does. And she didn't talk about her Nobel Peace Prize. She didn't talk about this Sisters of Charity and all this infrastructure that she built up. She says, if I see a dead person, I pick them up. If I see a hungry person, I feed him. If I see uh, somebody who needs shoes, I try to give him shoes. She says, I don't care if they're Buddhist, Hindu, they're my brother, they're my sister. She does ordinary things with extraordinary love. This is why we love Mother Teresa and call her a saint. But are we discipling our saints within our church to do ordinary things with extraordinary love? I told you a couple weeks ago that when I graduated seminary, I had this dream and this idea that all I would do, (laughs) this is so stupid, and I think about this a lot. I think about this every week when I'm driving around somewhere and I'm saying, nobody told me that ministry was driving to Mardell and laminating stuff. You know, like nobody told me that ministry is like, uh, you know, taking this person, uh, you know, to, to this random place. Like, so, so I had to learn this because I thought that ministry was going to coffee shops and talking about the finer points of theology and these kinds of things. And then what happens over and over and over is people just need you to show up and people just need you to listen and people just say, okay, where's God and what's next? And I should have learned this just like Peter In my first internship in 2003, I'm ready to start. Dude, I'm dressed in business casual because whatever, I don't know. And instead, this youth pastor says, get in the truck. And he says, also untuck your shirt. And I said, yeah, dude, but aren't we like starting work today? Where are we going? We're going to the hospital. We're going to this. He goes, no, we're going to Walmart. And I said, what are we doing? Are we like having to like... um, you know, get some like pens and papers. Do we have a class we're teaching tonight? He goes, we're getting kiddie pools. I said, why are we getting kiddie pools? He says, because it's the summer and we're starting this thing called boot camp and I'm gonna fill them with pancake batter and water and we're gonna throw them around at each other and then we'll have like a five minute Bible study. And I said, cool, so so tomorrow no slacks, right? And I learned very early I thought I learned, I still had to unlearn it for the last 20 years, that ministry is the ordinary, everyday places doing extraordinary things. So when we launched our clothes closet several years ago, we said, because so many people said to us, hey, good luck, 
that'll be fun. Yeah. They said, clothes have a way of multiplying like rabbits. You're going to be up to our ears and clothes. Guess what? We're up to our ears and clothes. <laughs> and then they said, hey, you're just going to have, you know, the same people doing it all the time. And to a degree now, that's true. COVID kind of messed us up. But when you started, when we started, I said, yeah, right. Here's what we're doing. You remember what we did? We said, if you're a partner at the neighborhood church, you have a calendar year to get down Walnut to the, recre the Recreation Outreach Center and serve at the clothes closet at least once. And every single partner, member, whatever you want to call them at the neighborhood church, did. And then they did the next year. And they did, maybe except for a couple exceptions, every year until COVID hit. And then what began to happen is when, then we went to Mexico and we saw them with a lot of clothes that multiplied like rabbits. And they had an alarm go off on their phone. And then what did our, our brothers and sisters in Tijuana say it was time to do? Pray. And then we all stopped and we prayed in English and we prayed in Spanish while we're sorting clothes. And then I shot eyes at Toby and said, we've never prayed when we're prepping clothes. So then we start praying for clothes. And then we start bringing our kids more and more because then we realize we can do an ordinary thing like give out uniforms and clothes and we can bring our kids and we can make this a discipleship opportunity so that they can see mom and dad and Toby and Pat and Carla talking with these other people and seeing they're no longer enemies and others, they're sisters and brothers and neighbors to be loved. And then we start to see that we can bathe these clothes in prayer and in trust that when someone walks up and it fits them perfectly, even though we just got that quinceanera dress that somebody hung up pride of place and we thought nobody's going to want that except somebody wanted it that next day. We can say maybe God is doing ordinary things with extraordinary love. We think foot washing is something really difficult, but I'm telling you, it's really menial in Jesus' day. The shocking thing is not that somebody was sweeping the floors at Buckingham Palace. The shocking thing is that it's the queen that's doing it. That's why Peter's like, stop. And Jesus says, no, 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 I don't have enough time. You need to understand that if, if, if service is beneath you, then leadership in my church is above you. This is the truth. So he's modeling for them, not just with his portrait, but with the words he says when he says, look, you're already clean. Peter, if you don't do this, you're not connected to me. You're not a part of me. In John 15, he says, you're already clean because of the word I preach to you. I've told you that I'm the king, which is the good news. If you've got your part with me, you're washed, you're clean. So let's keep it moving. Keep your feet clean. And so he says, you're already clean. So you saw me do this. Now you go and do likewise, which is our second big idea when it comes to Jesus's pattern. If you refuse to place yourself above others, then guess what? That means that no one is beneath you. Because when you say, well, I've done this, or I've studied that, or I have this experience, or I have that, when you place yourself above them, listen, that's not to say that you can't offer your experience, offer your wisdom, offer your gifts, offer your status, 
But when you start to say, hey, I'm the assistant principal, my way goes, what happens is they get it, they're beneath you. Oh, it's like that, huh? But if you refuse to place yourself above others, and then, then that means that no one's beneath you. That means that you can offer your wisdom and guidance and service from a posture that's alongside, or dare I say, even under washing feet. But if you refuse to place yourself above others, like Philippians 2 says, don't be too big for your britches. Consider others' needs before your own. Or like Romans 12, 3, let none of you think too highly of yourself as you ought. And elsewhere in Romans 10, uh, 12, 10 and 12, 16, he's talking about look out for the needs of others. So if no one's beneath you, then guess what happens next? No one is unworthy of your time, attention and service. One of my other heroes is Dorothy Day. And I remember in one of her biographies, this person that was writing a piece about her noticed as he stepped in for today's shadowing and interviewing that she was there in a stairwell sitting down and enraptured with this woman who was just yelling and talking and all over the road saying all these things. And the biographer, the person, journalist, was thinking, man, she must be having a bad day, but this must be a really important person. Why? Because Dorothy Day was sitting in the stairwell, giving her full attention, looking at her face, and they did this for a long time. So finally, this woman speaks her piece. She's done talking. She moves away. And then Dorothy Day turns her attention to the journalist. And the journalist says, well, who is that? She goes, I don't know, some drunk lady. Because if no one is beneath you, then all of a sudden, no one's unworthy of your time, your attention, and service. If Jesus took the form of a slave, if Jesus might even take the form of a homeless person, then all of a sudden, these people that are cast out to the margins of society are somehow aligned with Jesus. And if you would give Jesus your attention, why don't you give them your attention? This is what it looks like. This is the impression that he's given to them. And when I say the word pattern, it's because Jesus said, I've given you a pattern. And that word means a blueprint for you to trace. In the ancient Near East, this word that John puts in the mouth of Jesus, I've given you an example that you should follow. He says, here is the blueprint for what it means to be my disciple. Go and trace it. There's historical evidence that the Christians for centuries really actually incorporated foot washing into their liturgies, which we say, oh, that's crazy. I much prefer communion getting passed down as a meal from that night. But there's something that the Christians intuited and they made it into their liturgy, which is a fancy word for the work of the people. Because how do you think it would unify and galvanize a community filled with Jews and Gentiles slaves and free, men and women, when all of a sudden the apostles and prophets are the ones taking off their robe and kneeling down to wash the feet of a child. Do you think that that impressed and gave the work of discipleship and imparted that to a Christian community that was still obsessed with which teacher they should follow, Paul or Apollos or Peter? But what would happen if we got to the point in our liturgy where Apollos kneels down and does the work of a slave. Maybe then it doesn't matter how many Instagram followers that preacher has because he's doing the work that Jesus gave him to trace. 
So the question for us is, well, if we're not literally washing feet, although we've done that in spaces like our leader retreats, and you find that it's intimate and it's, 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 it's real and it's, 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 it's earthy, it's hard. But if we're not going to literally do that, what's the example that he's handed you to trace? What is that? Who is previously unworthy that maybe he's handing you this blueprint and he says, no, they're not unworthy. No, I know you dislike speaking and being in those kinds of spaces. He says, I didn't really love washing Matthew's feet. (laughs) There's something about the intimacy and the touch where Jesus makes this connection. And then he says, you go and do likewise. Make connections and decrease your status. I'm going to close with a brief story and questions. March 2021, I was on a coaching call with a man named J.R. Briggs, who in my eyes is very high status. He's a dear friend, but he's very gifted. He's wise. So he was my coach in a formal relationship for a, a period of a couple years. And so we were having this coaching call in March of last year. He's authored some books that Toby and Jason just read on eldership. It's supremely helpful. And so he's imparting some wisdom and he's coughing a lot. And I say, dude, what's going on? He goes, man, no big deal. I have COVID. I said, why are you on a call with me? He goes, I'll be honest with you. Five minutes before we started this, I was wondering if I need to go to the hospital. Well, five minutes after we got off our call that he said he had to stay on, he just wanted to, he did go to the hospital. And he was treated for this virus. And as he was on his way to go and uh, check out, they thought he was going to be discharged. His fever spikes and he started to feel faint and flush. And so they said, let's not discharge today. And then they rushed him to the ICU. And just this week, he reposted a couple blog posts about his experience. So I'm not betraying his trust by saying this. He was publicly processing this idea of being sick and feeling vulnerable and feeling powerless and helpless. But what he's described in that space, one second there, what he described was how he had this preternatural calmness that he was like, okay, now I'm going to the ICU. And they came in and they dutifully checked his blood pressure, his vitals, the whole nine. And he was like, okay, okay. And they kept saying, man, you're so calm, you're so calm. As he's spending a night in the ICU that he said he literally slept 20 minutes that night. Not because he was afraid to die, but he was afraid of what his death might mean for his kids, wife, family, others. So he's in this place where he seems calm and peaceful on the outside, but he's wondering what is going to happen next. And so then, as this one particular nurse comes in, and her name was Brenda, and she says, do you need Motrin? Do you need this? Do you need this? He's like, no, I'm fine. No, I'm fine. No, I'm fine. As she's on her way out of the room, fully gowned, whole nine, she starts to disrobe her gloves and all those things, but then she stops puts him back on, starts to foam up and says, hey, can I rub your back? Do you need a back rub or something? 
he said yes. And he said it surprised him how fast he said yes, but he realized the whole time I've been in here, not just ICU, but like my boys can't visit, my wife can't visit, I have no contact, I can't do any of this. And so it's almost like something just intuitively said, yes, yes, please. And so what happens is she comes over and he just kind of leans to the side and she just sits just off the side of the bed doing this very ordinary thing of just literally rubbing his back. And he said it was just like the well just overflowed, the dam broke. He said he wept loudly for 15 minutes straight while she just rubbed his back. He said he wept so loudly that people from the charge station came into the room wondering what was wrong from this calm and peaceful patient. And so that's when he says these words, reflecting back on that time. I'd read the studies on the importance of touch on humans' neurological, physical, and emotional development. I'd preached on the healing power of Jesus' touch. I'd written on how Jesus healed others through touch. But now it was my turn to experience it firsthand. My fever didn't leave me the moment Brenda touched my back. But she gave me something greater. A clear sense of solidarity, connection, calm, and care that I desperately needed in that room. In that upper room, just before Passover, there is a rabbi who loved them even till the end, who had said all about how we must go and reach out to the lost sheep, but he, he had talked about how we need to touch and extend mercy and healing to the leper and the blind and the lame. But when words failed him, he knelt down and he touched his disciples. And through their experience, I'm confident they never forgot until the day they die. He decreased his status so that the hands of God might touch their feet and show them what true love and sacrifice looked like. Because love matters more than status. Faithfulness matters more than fame. And goodness and mercy and compassion matter more than notoriety. So the questions I leave you with are these. What of Jesus' portrait is most captivating to me tonight? What does a decrease of status look like in my life? And finally, how can I follow Jesus' pattern of service in my life with others? Holy Spirit, would you give us wisdom and courage to seek answers to these questions from you? And we need the courage because it takes a lot to decrease ourself, our stuff, and our status and to follow where you are leading so would you in your kindness and gentleness wash us, keep us, lead us on our way toward the cross and the empty tomb. We pray all this in the name of Jesus, our King. Amen. Let's receive our benediction. If Christ, the foot washer and friend of sinners, is your King, then no menial service for others is beneath your dignity. And no individual is unworthy of your concern and respect. So may you go and do ordinary things with extraordinary love. If you cannot be the savior to everyone who is in trouble, 
then be Christ's agent for those you encounter this week. May you keep your eyes and hearts open so that you will recognize those who come to you in Christ for mercy. Now may the love of Christ Jesus enfold you, the love of God encircle you, and the fellowship of the Spirit enrich you now and evermore. Go in peace.